Chapter Five of Dead Men Tell No Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Carl, St. Louis, Missouri, January 2008. Dead Men Tell No Tales by E. W. Hornung. Chapter Five My Reward. The sun declined, my shadow broadened on dye waters, and now I felt that if my cockle-shell could live a little longer, why, so could I. I had got at the fowls without further hurt. Some of the bars took out, I discovered how, and now very carefully I got my legs in and knelt, but the change of posture was not worth the risk one ran for it. There was too much danger of capsizing and failing to free oneself before she filled and sank. With much caution I began breaking the bars, one by one. It was hard enough, weak as I was, my thighs were of more service than my hands. But at last I could sit. The grating only covered me from the knees downwards, and the relief of that outweighed all danger, which, as I discovered to my untold joy, was now much less than it had been before. I was better ballast than the fowls. These I had attached to the lashings which had been blown asunder by the explosion. At one end of the coop the ring-bolt had been torn clean out, but at the other it was the cordage that had parted. To the frayed ends I tied my fowls by the legs, with the most foolish pride in my own cunning. Do you not see? It would keep them fresh for my use. It was a trick I had read of in no book. It was all my own. So evening fell and found me hopeful, and even puffed up, but yet no sail. Now, however, I could lie back, and use had given me a strange sense of safety. Besides, I think I knew, I hope I felt, that the hen-coop was in other hands than mine. All is reaction in the heart of man. Light follows darkness nowhere more surely than in that hidden self. And now at sunset, it was my heart's high moon. Deep peace pervaded me as I lay outstretched in my narrow rocking bed, as it might be in my coffin. A trust in my Maker's will, to save me, if that were for the best. A trust in His final wisdom and loving kindness. For though this night should be my last on earth, for myself I was resigned, and for others I must trust him no less. Who is I to constitute myself the protector of the helpless when he was in his heaven? Such was my sunset mood. It lasted a few minutes, and then, without radically changing, it became more objective. The west was a broadening blaze of yellow and purple and red. I cannot describe it to you. If you have seen the sun set in the tropics, you would despise my description, and, if not, I for one could never make you see it. Suffice it that a petrol wheeled somewhere between deepening carmine and paling blue, and it took my thoughts off at an earthly tangent. I thanked God there were no big sea-birds in these latitudes, no mollyhawks, no albatrosses, no capens. I thought of an albatross that I had caught going out. Its beak and talons were at the bottom with the charred remains of the Lady Germain. But I could see them still, could feel them shrewdly in my mind's flesh, and so to the old superstition, strangely justified in my case. 
and so to the poem which I, with my special experience, not unnaturally consider the greatest poem ever penned. But I did not know it then as I do now, and how the lines eluded me. I seemed to see them in the book, yet I could not read the words. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. That, of course, came first, incorrectly, and it reminded me of my thirst, which the blood of the fowls had so very partially appeased. I see now that it is terribly lucky I could recall but little more. Experience is less terrible than realization, and that poem makes me realize what I went through as memory cannot. It has verses which would have driven me mad. On the other hand, the exhaustive mental search for them distracted my thoughts until the stars were back in the sky. And now I had a new occupation, saying to myself all the poetry I could remember, especially that of the sea, for I was a bookish fellow even then. But I never was anything of a scholar. It is odd, therefore, that the one apposite passage which referred to me in its entirety was in hexameters and parameters. Mi miserum, quanti montes volvantur aquarum. Jam jam tacturos sedera summa puntes. Quante didacto subsident aquare venes. Jam jam tacturos tartara nigra putes. Quo conque et spico nihil est nisi pontes et ather. Fluctibus hictumidus nubibus ili minax. More there was of it in my head, but this much was an accurate statement of my case, and yet less so now, I was thankful to reflect, than in the morning, when every wave was indeed a mountain, and its trough a Tartarus. I had learned the lines at school, nay, they had formed my very earliest piece of Latin repetition. And how sharply I saw the room I said them in, the man I said them to, ever since my friend. I figured him even now hearing Ovid Rep, the same passage in the same room. And I lay saying it on a hencoop in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. At last I fell into a deep sleep, a long unconscious holiday of the soul, undefiled by any dream. They say that our dreaming is done as we slowly wake. Then was I out of the way of it that night, for a sudden violent rocking awoke me in one horrid instant. I made it worse by the way I started to a sitting posture. I had shipped some water. I was shipping more. Yet all around the sea was glassy. Whence was the commotion? As my ship came trim again, I saw that my hour was not yet. The cause occurred to me, and my heart turned so sick that it was minutes before I had the courage to test my theory. It was the true one. A shark had been at my trailing fowls, had taken the bunch of them together, dragging the legs from my loose fastenings. Lucky they had been no stronger else I had been dragged down to perdition, too. Lucky, did I say? The refinement of cruelty, rather, for now I had neither meat nor drink. My throat was a kiln, my tongue a flame, and another day at hand. 
The stars were out, the sea was silver, the sun was up. Hours passed. I was waiting now for my delirium. It came in bits. I was a child. I was playing on the lawn at home. I was back on the blazing sea. I was a schoolboy saying my Ovid, then back once more. The hencoop was the Lady Germain. I was at Eva Denison's side. They were marrying us on board. The ship's bell was ringing for us. The guitar in the background burlesqued the wedding march under skinny fingers. The air was poisoned by a million cigarettes. They raised a pall of smoke above the mastheads. They set fire to the ship. Smoke and flame covered the sea from rim to rim. Smoke and flame filled the universe. The sea dried up, and I was left lying on its bed, lying in my coffin, with red-hot teeth because the sun blazed right above them, and my withered lips were drawn back from them forever. So once more I came back to my living death, too weak now to carry a finger to the salt water and back to my mouth, too weak to think of Eva, too weak to pray any longer for the end, to trouble or to care any more. Only so tired. Death has no more terrors for me. I have supped the last horror of the worst death a man can die. You shall hear now for what I was delivered. You shall read of my reward. My floating coffin was many things in turn, a railway carriage, a pleasure boat on the Thames, a hammock under the trees. Last of all, it was the upper berth in a not very sweet-smelling cabin, with a clatter of knives and forks near at hand, and a very strong odor of onions in the Irish stew. My hand crawled to my head, both felt of wondrous weight, and my head was covered with bristles no longer than those on my chin, only less stubborn. Where am I? I feebly asked. The knives and forks clattered on, and presently I burst out crying because they had not heard me, and I knew that I could never make them hear. Well, they heard my sobs, and a huge fellow came with his mouth full and smelling like a pickle bottle. Where am I? Aboard the brig Eliza, Liverpool, homeward bound. Glad to see them, eyes open. Have I been here long? Matter of ten days. Where did you find me? Floating in a hen coop. Thought you was a dead un. Do you know what ship? Do we know? No, that's what you've got to tell us. I can't, I sighed, too weak to wag my head upon the pillow. The man went to my cabin door. Here's a go, he said, forgotten the name of his blessed ship he has. Where's that there paper, Mr. Bowles? There's just a chance it may be the same. I've got it, sir. Well, fetch it along, and come you in, Mr. Bowles. Likely you may think of something. A reddish hook-nosed man with a jaunty, wicked look came and smiled at me in the friendliest fashion. The smell of onions became more worse than I knew how to endure. Ever hear of the ship Lady Germain? asked the first corner, winking at the other. I thought very hard. The name did sound familiar, but no, I could not honestly say I had heard it before. The captain looked at his mate. It was a thousand to one, he said. Still, we may as well try him with other names. Ever hear of Captain Harris, mister? Not that I know of. Of Saunderson's steward? No. Or Crook's quartermaster? Never. Nor yet of Reddy, a passenger? 
no. It's no use going on, said the captain, folding up the paper. None whatever, sir, said the mate. Ready, ready, I repeated. I do seem to have heard that name before. Won't you give me another chance? The paper was unfolded with a shrug. There was another passenger of the name of San Santos, Dutchman, seemingly. Ever heard of him? My disappointment was keen. I could not say that I had, yet I could not swear I had not. Oh, won't you? Well, there's only one more chance. Ever heard of Miss Eva Dennison? By God, yes, have you? I was sitting bolt upright on my bunk. The skipper's beard dropped upon his chest. Bless my soul, the last name of the lot, too. Have you heard of her? I reiterated. Wait a bit, my lad, not so fast. Lie down again and tell me who she was. Who she was, I screamed. I want to know where she is. I can't hardly say, said the captain awkwardly. We found the gig of the Lady German a week after we found you, being becalmed like. There wasn't no lady aboard her, though. Was there anybody? Two dead ends and this here paper. The skipper hesitated. Hadn't you better wait a bit? No, no, for Christ's sakes, let me see the worst. Do you think I can't read it in your face? I could. I did. I made that plain to them, and at last I had the paper smoothed out upon my knees. It was a short statement of the last sufferings of those who had escaped in the gig, but there was nothing in it that I did not now expect. They had buried ready first, then my darling and her stepfather. The rest expected to follow fast enough. It was all written plainly on a sheet of the logbook in different trembling hands. Captain Harris had gone next, and two had been discovered dead. How long I studied that bit of crumpled paper, with the salt spray still sparkling on it faintly, God alone knows. All at once a peal of nightmare laughter rattled through the cabin. My deliverer started back. The laugh was mine. End of chapter 5